0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. Mfniso Odafia is a Nigerian-American storyteller, actor, and educator whose work centers on Nigerian immigrant life within the United States. Her play Sojourners, Run Boy Run, her portmanteau and in old age have been seen at the American Conservatory Theater, the New York Theater Workshop, Playwrights Realm, Magic Theater, National Black Theater, Strand Theater Company, Boston Court. She's the recipient of the 2017 Helen Merrill Playwright Award and the 2017 18 McKnight National Residency and Commissions at the Playwrights Center and is a member of the New Dramatist Class of 2023. Feniso, Currently commissioned by ACT, Hartford Stage, Denver Center, ACT Roundhouse, and South Coast Repertory. Her plays have been developed by such theaters as the Manhattan Theater Club, the Playwrights Realm, the MacArthur Oregon Shakespeare Festival, many, many others, including Berkeley Rep. And she is the translator of Othello, which is currently the play on podcast, and she's here with me today so it's such an honor to have you with us thank you for agreeing to be part of the play on podcast bonus content series for Othello
0: hello and of course it's so good to be here today
1: I want to start you and I have had several conversations uh leading into the process and then throughout uh and one of the things that you mentioned that that you sort of posited if uh, if we could call it that this this, entire production on is the question of whose is the body that is dispossessed yeah. in this story. Can we start there? What do you mean by dispossessed?
0: Maybe I actually have to run it back a little, even before I talk about dispossessed mm-hmm. um, to what I thought the play was. I thought the play was, a love story, a tragic love story. Um, I think I met that play when I was in 10th grade, Um, was not a big Shakespeare head and that's how it was taught to me and that's the way I received it. So when I was approached, that's what I, I was like, okay, I'm not a Shakespeare head, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this play Othello because at least I have some context for it and in my head was lodged, love story. And then I get in there and I do, it's not that it's, there's not a kind of love which we can poke and tap out what love is inside of this uh, in deep quotation marks for me anyway. But as I was inside the play, the agent, the master uh, mind and villain was Iago. And what he was enacting was a, a way to dispossess a body that's already othered, and it was um, in my older age, away from tenth grade English, uh with some you know, experience now in the world where I'm like, oh, i I'm looking at a manual of dispossession first for me. And what I mean when I say now to your question, what is dispossession? It is the way of pushing somebody out onto marginalizing them, pushing them out onto the outskirts, um, uh, specifically a body that you don't think belongs within your um, uh, community, society. Um, and so that's what I mean when I say this. For me, became a manual to dispossess the human.
1: In that sense, do you Mm -hmm. feel that the play still serves a purpose?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. That's a great question. You know, the way we educate around this play, I think, needs to become more nuanced. I am not one of those, you know, and I don't know if I will be lambasted for saying this, but I'm not one of those that's like, burn down all of our uh, classics. Um, I think that there is an import to understanding them, but to just look at this play as a love story is a disservice. I think we need to understand what Iago is doing and what might be at the heart of Iago. So I am an advocate for more nuanced education around what it is we're viewing. Because to call it just a love story, a tragic one without understanding Iago's machinations and from whence that might have come from him, uh, even though uh, specifically race is different across time, century, all of that, um, without really taking that in, I think we are actually ingesting a malignancy in order to favor a potency on love or like some story of love. And then that it's not as if we're not ingesting something, you know? Um, So I, for me, uh, I think more nuanced education needs to happen around Othello or, or, you know, uh, stand inside the reckoning of, we don't know anymore what we're teaching. I mean, that might sound harsh, but for me as a, Whatever age I was when I was started translating, I was not happy that all I had inside of me was that this was a tragic love story.
1: So if you were to teach a class and we're introducing this play to this class, Mm -hmm. how would you begin now?
0: Oh, that's a loaded question. I mean, loaded only because I haven't, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I've like thought it all the way through, but uh, in terms of educating, but uh, one of the components would be, what is a more? Mm. Uh, what were the other people's? Who were they? Um, the complexity of that word more. Uh, and uh, an understanding of armies and brotherhood and the uh, what it is to be somebody who is other who's also trying to ascend inside a community and construct that is not your own. And let's get inside that language deeper, not just the poetics of it, but exactly what is Iago saying as he's going through his dispossession arc and how that animal imagery that he's using is getting uglier and uglier and uglier as this play is going. Um, I would make us actually deal with the words on the page and understand the culture from which this is coming out of and ask ourselves, like, what are some of the parallels to what we are seeing today? And, you know, um, and I'm not saying that I'm gonna leave Desdemona and leave that arc of love that is there. Uh, I'm just asking us to deal honestly with it. And that I think will need a lot more cultural um, work, context, education, and also drawing parallels to today. So it's not some grand lofty tale that we bow to. It's one that we are picking apart and asking ourselves, actually, what is happening? And what what is the blow to the human body? If we're not doing that, if we're only packaging it in one way, then we are <clears throat> doing a disservice, I think, to our population, our our, our children, our edu- whoever we are educating.
1: You mentioned dealing with the words that are there. This is obviously mm-hmm. something you did intensely yeah. to, to translate. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. So what was that experience for you what words needed to change and how?
0: The word more, the word more is not. a uh, uh, So, okay. Let me actually go a little bit into process too. Please. Um, Because I'm not somebody who, I'm not going to tell you like I'm a lover of Shakespeare and I spent all my life reading. I, I think I've already <clears throat> alluded to what I'm not. Mm-hmm. So I read it. And then I sat there with all sorts of books that were helping me parse through what I was reading. And then I said it in my own language, like as in funny so. Um, and one of the one of the rules was uh, do no harm. So as much as possible, keep iambic pentameter, uh uh keep the iambic pentameter, uh keep the rhythm, keep the music, uh, just uh don't don't move away from the poetry, just make the poetry more salient for today. And so I couldn't do that step right away. I had to read, have somebody help me understand what I was reading. And then after that, say it in my own way, which means I was destroying rhythm, and then go back and take a look and like, okay, move what I said into something that was verse-like. So I had multiple stages of translation in order to get what you're listening to. Mm-hmm. um, uh, And that was helpful for me because I am not, I- I'm not versed in this. And so as I was going, I was like, oh, okay. This word more holds so much inside of it. It could be both slur, it could be both or just a marker of somebody who is different from you. It could be uh, religious. It could connote something that is a religious difference. It could, it held, it just was um magnanimous in scope, that one word, and we don't have a word that does that today. So a part of my translating too was going back and going, what do I think is being said? Do I think it is a slur here? Do I think it's just uh, a word to um uh, denote the other here? And so... That was part of my, I hope I'm answering your question, but that was part of my work was there were these words, uh, more um, uh, anything that becomes racialized today that I had to like figure out, how do I say this?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. The, and and in the subtitle, in the original, it is the Moor of Venice, mm-hmm. right? And you dispensed with that. That's not in this title.
0: Mm-mm, I just and, called it Othello. Right. And yeah.
1: can you think of some of the words you used in the translation to replace more? Uh,
0: more might have become beast. Uh, if I thought we were uh, in some middle ground, terrible, it mm-hmm. might have become ape, in in order to. Uh, further stretch some of the animal imagery that might have been happening around it. It might have become black and not necessarily black skinned,, uh, because actually, I don't know what what color Othello was. I just know he's other, um, but black as it as a foil to white, which is horribly some thought on what purity is and to what impure is. So depending on the context and out of whose mouth that word had many other monosyllabic ways that I was using it so that you understood the intent behind the person who was saying that word.
1: It's so immediate and so incredibly cruel when we hear Iago and how he talks about this person who then in the next instant is kissing up to this person and, and coddling or what, being coddled by whatever. However, the, 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 uh, the nakedness of the cruelty is, is so evident thanks to the translation. There's no, there's no filter.
0: No. And I, uh... I've been inside of some tough back situations where there has been a like, why did you do that? It wasn't like that. And I'm like, I actually think it might've been, it was just the way that that word is now so poetic. You don't get to deal in a visceral way with what the intent behind what is being said is. Mm
1: -hmm. And that was
0: my job was to make you go, oh, okay. Like maybe when Cassio says that word more, he's going the other. Mm-hmm. But when Iago's saying that word, he's going the beast.
1: In your experience working on this, do you were you able to get to any clarity as to what it is that's driving Iago? Obviously, racism is one. Do you think that's the only thing driving Iago?
0: I think it's a question on what begets want which is something I think that we deal with today. Like when you think you are owed, Iago believes he is owed a position, a job. He's been inside the barracks with Othello. Um, And I actually, it's hard to know the histories of them in total to understand if there was ever a time these two were truly braided in true unity Or if there was always something of a, uh, well, I'm a attach and go with him. But what happened is, at least in my estimation, was Othello did not give him a job. Mm. It's a tool. His otherness is a a tool now that can be used to write the world for what Iago thinks the world should be. Right. So I think the inception might have been a jealousy. Um, and a a deep seated understanding of what the world should be for someone like him, and the world is not operating that way. And so I'm going to use your otherness in order to um, uh, rile the world up against you, and 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 um, uh, make you beast in order to get what I think is my do even if at this point it's just revenge um so that was probably really really circular but yes he's bigoted yes he's racist and he's also somebody who feels as if he's been slighted and I think the slighted and the jealousy might come a bit before the the othering it's a dehumanization process in order to get what you want now, somebody can push back on that, and I will actually hold that. But that's what I, I I I think it's not just race and bigotry. I also think it is the deep-seated jealousy that the world should be mine, not yours.
1: Right. And that's become the tagline for the whole series, Beware of Jealousy. It is it, it's a famous line from the play itself, of course, but but the more we're now into episode uh three was is published today. Um, And 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 the hooray! uh, The more that it it we get into this story, the the more convinced I am. Hearing it over and over again is is just what a driving force that jealousy is. Yeah, Uh, you know. In addition to, I mean, that the racism is most of it, you know, or at least the 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 booster rocket or some, you know. But it it it's it's this envy, this jealousy, this. You know that 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 somebody that is so ha- ha- devoid of any soul, <laughs> ultimately, sees somebody who has such a beautiful soul and wants to destroy it. Is even jealous of that?
0: All of that because he does not possess it. I mean, it is a tale as old as time. I think it is how. We, I mean, I'm sorry, America is where America is and what bore America and it's not just an American thing if you go into other countries and climates it's this you have I should have it I am the power paradigm thus you are thus you are because I see you as less than me I'm going to dispossess you dehuman dehumanize you first to dispossess you to take what you have it's mm-hmm. pretty it's pretty baked into the way we humans behave with each other it's so ugly
1: yeah
0: and inside of there is a kernel of a love story, but please don't get it twisted. What's really also happening is we have just pulled this man down, annihilated a whole group of women in order to reset a status quo.
1: I want to ask a question that's incredibly sensitive. Um and forgive me if it's if it if it comes across in any way that's offensive, but we talk you you were talking about um words to use in place of more and words that pack that uh sort of potency today and you you brought up some uh, you know, uh ape was one or black and did was it ever in your mind to use the n word
0: i get close
1: mm.
0: i get close there's a word i'm not going to say you will hear it inside the podcast. Mm-hmm. i do get close Um, I use uh, a pretty I I believe it's British in um, a British almost archaic word for idiot, Mm -hmm. which holds um, uh, a root that's going to make any black ear tick. But I also feel like it might be broad enough to hold a wide group of people as opposed to just black bodies that might get that word thrown on them. So I get real close. Um, I didn't go all the way because that word also um, holds a very particular American context inside of it. So what I do is I nod to it and mm-hmm. widen. There is a word out there. You will hear it that holds the root of that. Uh, and then also widens to hold a whole scope of other people who might who could be called that. So Another- yeah, close yes.
1: So the N-word would be it's too too colloquial to American. I mean, it, it, it's too narrow in its scope in that sense.
0: I just want to make sure that anybody who is othered can be held within this story. Mm-hmm. So when I'm using that animal in imagery, part of what I did was take a look and see, oh no, we are using animal imagery all over the world. In right. order to other people who are not like us. Like it is not just uh, a certain group of people who are called animals. It's, it's, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty awful way to go, I'm human, you are not. And we are doing this the old world over. So it feels really salient to hear, but it is important that it can move for me. Mm-hmm um and uh colorism moves which is why white black moves right uh, animal imagery moves um the way in which i got close to that word can move right so that if you're doing this inside of a country that is not this one you can mm-hmm. still do it and go ah okay that's yeah. awful and it is also true
1: there's a difference in the way that uh the character Othello speaks mm-hmm. in your translation. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how um like it it there it, um, before I say anything more, I see you have you're you're ready to answer. So go ahead.
0: Well, I was really interested in what makes a man like him. Um yeah, I was really interested in what makes a man like him. And then there was some, uh, there was a way in which in the beginning, he speaks with such uh, fluidity mm-hmm. and um, inside, not my translation, even inside the original, where it's like this whole passage where he's building what his love was um, and t- talking about who he was as a man. mm mm-hmm and building this like the his history for us and how who he was a man and his history led him into this moment of love with Desdemona and it was for me it was gorgeous and I it is the place where I I I break and anybody who is like inside the Shakespeare and inside mine is like oh this is different I wanted to I wanted to allow that to breathe. Mm -hmm. I wanted to give the actor who is playing Othello, whoever that actor might be, who is inside a part that is going to make him by the end of the play rabid, frothing at the mouth, and murdering. Mm
1: -hmm. I wanted.
0: Sorry. I I wanted it. I wanted us to see the living heartbeat of the man and for us to like stand inside of it for a moment. Cause I cannot in the translation as a translator, um, change what happens in the play, mm-hmm. but I can at least crack open the heart as much as I can so that we see that there was a human being because sometimes it is hard to see that. And especially when I don't have um, access to the language that Shakespeare is using, it is hard to see that. Sometimes it is hard to feel that. And I was like, by God, I am going to give this, I'm going to try to make him a man. Um, and so, yeah, I I gave him ellipses, uh, four eyes. I gave him, um, I gave him as much breath as I could before he starts a very quick descent into a jealous turn and re- something that looks monstrous.
1: We talked a lot about that as we were going into production the the sort of the 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 breath and what happens to breath especially yeah. in Iago's case can we can you talk about that?
0: What happens to breath? Oh, we might have to stop what happens to breath
1: <laughs> well, so when we we were talking about early on, just sort of the 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 level of containment within iag I'm sorry, the level of containment within Othello. Okay. This sense of control uh, mm-hmm. that he has over himself and the evenness okay. of temperament, Quiet. and the dissolution okay. of that. I
0: think I heard a th- uh, I heard Iago, and I was like, I don't know what I said with Iago. Oh,
1: maybe I said before, Iago
0: before. fellow, Othello, right. um, I I start allowing a play in line to allow for breathing uh and actually in Othello and in Desdemona I believe Mm -hmm. as as uh Iago's pressure cooker starts making their relationship um disintegrate so that you give time for them to feel and get their organically and probably viciously. It is, I wanted to make sure that not only was I translating the word, but I was doing an emotional translation as well, giving room and scope. So sometimes, I, I mean, I we said it inside the podcast, it is okay for me if a breath is an I am.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Take it, feel it. If it happens in the middle, it is fine for me. So, that you can give yourself the launch pad that you need to feel, to go, to descend into this um, uh, emotional state. So,
1: you were in 10th grade, you said, when you encountered this play for the first time?
0: I think so. I keep saying that with a surety, but everybody needs to know that I really don't do time very well. (laughs) Um, I do know I I was in high school. It was around that time where you do your Shakespeare's and I have very clear remembrances of Romeo and Juliet and Othello. And I think it was 10th grade for Othello. But one of my teachers might actually come back and be like, no, baby, it was definitely eighth grade. So (laughs) be kind to me. But it was in my high school that I was reading. Um, it was w- those two Shakespeare's, Othello and Romeo and Juliet.
1: And where was high school for you? Uh, I was in Southridge,
0: Massachusetts.
1: Is that your mm-hmm. home?
0: Uh, So, no, that's where I that is where I grew up. My home now is um New York. But I mean, that's mo- that's where my heart beat. That's where in my head when I think of if somebody asks me, where's my hometown? it's southbridge massachusetts
1: so that's 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 where you grew up
0: yeah yeah that's where i had my that's where i
1: became my all the stuff so yeah and are both your parents nigerian
0: they are they are and they are both still in southbridge massachusetts in our big old house on top of a hill yeah <laughs> join play on premium to get merch like t-shirts hoodies and coffee mugs ad free episodes and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors producers playwrights and directors who brought it all to life go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to play on premium to support the art and the artists
1: How did you find your way into theater and and writing
0: circuitously circuitously most definitely um I very prototypical Nigerian immigrant um I'm sure people have heard the sayings like uh you're." Nigerian, your parents gave you options. You're going to be uh, a doctor, a lawyer, um, you know, maybe if they're feeling fancy, a journalist. And so um, uh, I started out thinking I was going to be a lawyer, partly from a very deep push from my parents. I, I went to Wellesley College, and then I had an incredible dean there who asked me what I did for Joy and um, I didn't know. I was most definitely on a singular track and maybe, not maybe, deeply unhappy inside of it, even though I was good at it, political Mm -hmm. science. Uh, And so this, um, uh, Dean was like, let's put you on a different kind of schedule. And so I started singing opera, which I loved with Gail Fuller. Um, And then I started taking some acting classes at Wellesley and those acting classes, I was like, oh, I like how stories change the world just as much as maybe how politics and law could change the world. And I feel more myself um, when I'm inside uh, theater and performance. And so then I went to ACT Uh, to the chagrin of my parents I went to ACT to study acting because that was what I was dabbling in and Wellesley was performance I get out it's the great recession and I start writing to process the world and I'm writing in the form I just studied in so um, that's how playwriting started for me I what that and that's what I mean when I say circuitous I did not There are some of my friends who knew that they were going to be writers when they grew up. They just knew it and were chasing it. That was not me. It was um, a stumbling into, and then once I understood it, uh, wait, 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 let me grab at it and go.
1: What does it mean to say you started writing in the form you studied in?
0: So. I studied plays. I was at at ACT acting. So um, conservatory life, what is it? I think it was fair to say uh, six days a week, 13 hour days inside of play. And so I was reading plays voraciously because of the program, then acting inside of plays. And so when I get out of ACT, when I write, I was writing in play form. Because that's the that's the mind I had been in, and I guess I I you know that's actually a great thing to pull out because it's not as if writing is new. I was I was I I've, I've always written poetry. I've always written short story. It's just that I'd never really written plays until I'm out of ACT, and then it was like, well, no, this is what I write. I write plays.
1: Had you, uh, how how far did you get in your pursuit of acting, and was it a conscious choice to to change course?
0: So this really gets in. It, there are two thrusts. First, it's the Great Recession. So if you're remembering that period, there was a pullback in the theater too, and mm-hmm. so um, getting jobs was harder in in general, uh, and then also. Um, you know this was i'm I'm, a, I'm an african kid i'm an african girl and so i was going out for the african parts and not uh, african enough or for some of them you know mm-hmm. and and that's the harsh harsh reality was it just it, it wasn't i wasn't able to sit within the part well And then if it were parts like this was the period, if you remember time this time, too, where like Dreamgirls was coming back and was everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I couldn't I mentioned I sing opera. I couldn't sing the parts that I am uh, character wise. I look the type of I should be singing Christine. I cannot Mm -hmm. sing that song. Listen. I cannot do it. Somebody mm-hmm. else will do it better and you should sit and you should watch them. You don't want me to do that. <laughs> and so uh, we were also not at that point in theater where we were seeing other bodies inside of roles and going, ah, that can be. hmm I was a bit early for that swing, so it's like I couldn't do the parts that I was. I looked right for the parts that I was the African parts. I wasn't, um, uh, because uh, it was Lion King. It was ruined. That was out. I aesthetically I wasn't right for um, a certain parts. Uh, and then in the lion King, it was like singing the hyenas and I wasn't right for that. (laughs) I was like, everywhere I went, it was like, Oh, you are wonderful, but you're not quite the right type. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing the right type. (laughs) Um, and I thought that maybe I would be putting myself into my work. And then I was like, Oh no, I'm not. I started writing, um, I, I'm in the middle of writing my own cycle, uh, Nigerians in America over the span of a hundred years. Amazing. I, yeah. So, that's that's what started me on the track.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about what it is that you are writing in this cycle, a hundred years? Of-
0: yeah. Uh, I started 1978. It's nine. It, it's nine plays. Um, I started in 1978 when uh, Nigerians are like that swing of Nigerians coming into the country after decolonization and after the first modern African war, the biafran War. So I start there and uh, it's centered on a matriarch. Her name is Abasiyama and it starts out with the sojourner dream. I mean, the first play is called Sojourners. And it's uh the dream was uh you come to this country, you are in married pairs, you go to school, you get your education, you have a baby, uh who will be an American citizen, and then you go back, and you rebuild your country. So it's a very different way of thinking on what an immigrant is, mm. than what I think if you turn on the news, they tell you immigrants aren't. Mm-hmm. They're, these are people who love their homeland, love their country, are coming here to rebuild and then coup after coup later in Nigeria, you got children, you're like, I can't bring them back to that and you have to reform the dream. But these were not immigrants who wanted to stay inside this country. They loved their country and were are gonna go back. And so um, that's what Abbasiama, my matriarch, is coming with that idea of. Um, and we watch as she ends up staying inside of this country, how she, uh, navigates her marriage, how she, uh, navigates children now who are more American than Nigerian. And it's just (laughs) like combustion. Uh, and then, uh, how do you deal with the family overseas, um, that you, really want to be together. I mean it's very, very immigrant, most of the family is over there. How do you keep the family line going? and I track her until death and her progeny, all with the um uh one of the big questions on like how do you build inside a country you never intended to stay within? What does diasporic healing look like over the span of a hundred years as Africans uh, and Black Americans are coming into contact with each other? What does that maybe healing and uh, uh, the beginnings of a new dream uh, centered inside that love relationship? And I do that from 1978 and I'll go into uh, 2000. Seventy, which is great because I'm over, we're almost there, and mm-hmm. I, <laughs> and so yeah, that's that's what I'm doing.
1: Do you do you do you know where it ha- what happens? Have you gotten there yet?
0: I do. I've wrote the the end. I ended up writing quite soon. I I mean I had to do matrices, you in because this is an interconnected cycle. So I needed to have my edges done mm-hmm. and then fill in the middle. So I do know where we are ending and I do know how we get to 2070 without like busting future time in a great way. Um, But yeah. um,
1: Without getting into futurism and and sci-fi
0: and all that. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, There are some wonderful tricks which I'm not gonna uh, give out right now because I don't wanna blow my plays. But yes, (laughs) there, there are ways in which I am firmly in the future while not having to deal with, uh, you know, what, yeah, the technologies might be.
1: When you're writing, do you tend to, so you have a roadmap ahead of you generally, or, or is it different for every, every project you do? Do you map it out first or do you kind of, I know some writers kind of put it all out there without uh, any kind of map in mind. They just have a a sense of uh, some sort of a story and they, They put out pages and pages and pages and then whittle it down to where they want it to be.
0: I'm inside, ai think that I have fluidity, but I haven't been inside that kind of fluid space in a minute because I'm inside of a cycle. Mm. So um, the first three plays were written wide with real feel, and scope, and then once I isolate, because I went one play, three plays, five plays, nine plays, and then called nine my end. Uh-huh. Once I understood, I was inside real long form interconnected storytelling, which is around play three for me. Everything needed to be beat out within an inch of its life. I needed to know where I was going, which decades I was landing in, and kind of why. Um. And I was writing backwards and forwards at the same time. So I needed, I needed it to be pretty concrete. There's another play that I'm writing now that's outside the cycle. Uh, And that play I'm allowing myself to feel and Mm. just sort of ramble and rumble through. Um, And it sounds so different than everything I've already, anything I've ever written. And so, Yes, I think both are true of me, but because I'm inside of a cycle, I have more um, history of outlining real tight scaffolding, understanding the research and uh, doing a kind of writing math.
1: So you're able to work on multiple projects at the same time.
0: Yeah, like I wrote, I translated Othello while inside a cycle, and also writing for TV. It's a little crazy on the brain, but um, yeah, I do. I I do juggle projects.
1: Does well, and clearly that works for you. <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs> it, it does. It has. It has been. Um, but there is this period now you know when this comes out the strike will probably be over and I'm talking about the writer's strike that will be over but in that period it has been I have been writing plays mm-hmm. and, and been pretty one track and I my mind does like it my mind does like being sunk in one thing at one time but as most artists know especially with the precariousness of our field is sometimes you got to juggle in order to um get the things that you need and so I've had to juggle but I do like this period where I was able to just lock in and go what is a cycle play and I think that that might be over by the end of this
1: week (laughs)
0: so (laughs) I'll be back in multiple things again
1: Is television writing restrictive for you?
0: It's so different. There's a different science, a different propulsion behind it. I don't know that I would call it restrictive. Um, I think, I'll say it like this, writing four plays at the same time would be impossible for me. But writing a TV show, writing a play and editing a movie are deeply possible. They're different parts of my brain, different pieces, uh, different, slightly different logics for everything. And because of that, I can move between those mediums easier. So I wouldn't say that it's restrictive. What might be the, might what might be, rest- I wouldn't say that it's creatively restrictive. I do think I do come into like real issues about their 24 hours in a day. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm inside of a writer's room, that might be five hours of my day gone if you're in a Zoom room. And then after that, what is a little downtime to rest yourself as a human to then turn around into a play, to then turn around into a film? So it's, if anything, it's the time restriction. I don't know if it's the creative restriction if I order my plate right. Do
1: you ever feel a calling to... Be an actor in any of your projects or in any other projects?
0: No, no, I used to. I used to think that I was writing in order to put myself in them. And then the deeper my writing got, the more I was like, no, this is not for me to do. What I like is to write parts that are delicious and complicated for people of the African diaspora to be with it. And I thought that it was gonna be me, but I enjoy, it's enough to write. And um, when I realized that, I did realize <laughs> that while I, I like acting, I love writing. And that is, those are two different uh, storytelling vessels. So I love being inside the writing vessel. I love seeing a whole scope and designing a whole scope of a world. I actually like the chatter of all the voices in my brain. I get a little, uh, it's not a lie, so I'm going to say it like I say, I get a little cranky when I'm locked into one. Mm -hmm. And so I have a tendency to act in the in-between and really pick the project that makes my soul sing because I know that I'm going to get cranky in the middle of the run.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's just the knowledge uh, of uh, my being and I do love 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 actors so it's like you do it I don't (laughs) need to I don't need to (laughs) so yeah yeah.
1: were there ways in which working on Othello served you as a writer on your other projects
0: it's always good to sit there and understand the meaning behind a word, the reason why. I mean, you can't talk about Shakespeare without talking about rhetoric. And it was a reminder for me. I I, I don't know if we're even teaching rhetoric anymore in the way that I I actually learned it. Um, And this is my bed as a writer anyway. And so to be inside a project which... Made me go, well, is it red? Is it crimson? Am I going to destroy a, a line to get that word crimson? and why? and the all of this all of this bandy bah, bah, bandying I'm doing back and forth around a word and around a scan of a line reminded me of the beauty inside construction. And then when you're talking about like one of the rhetorical devices, repetition and like the picking of the word that you are do- beating somebody with. So it becomes part of their heartbeat and then starts making them a wholly different human being. It was a wonderful reminder of that. And so it's um, trickling into like it- inside comedies that I'm doing, you know, where I'm just like uh, six times over the course of a play saying a word and then the delight in watching that skip into somebody else's mouth. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's just a remembrance.
1: Were there places where you felt like there wasn't an adequate way to put it, even though it's unintelligible to us today without mm. opening those books, those lexicons, those the source material? Did you ever come up against that?
0: oh, I wish I remembered the line. All I can tell you is yes. And that I think that the line is in there as it was in the Shakespeare.
1: <laughs> so so in the spirit of do no harm, where you felt like you couldn't yeah. put it any other way, it stayed yeah. the way it was.
0: Yeah, it stayed the way it was.
1: Such a difficult play mm-hmm. to have to live with. Mm-hmm. For what, how long? Almost
0: a year and a half.
1: Were there points in your process working on it where you just grew to dislike it?
0: Oh yeah. And I grew to dislike it early because I didn't know what I chose. I had 10th grade brain on. I thought I chose a love story, a tragic one. I had actually kind of yin yanged Romeo and Juliet because of high school going okay they're both tragic love stories one the teenage version one the adult version
1: Uh so you literally didn't know what you were getting into
0: i literally didn't until i read it with my brain now Mm uh and read it without like somebody instructing me to think only on the love between Desdemona and othello and I quickly, I went, what is this? This is horrible. I was like, I don't know that it should be called Othello. I think it should be called Iago, a uh, way to marginalize. <laughs> that, that was me, you know? So I, my distress became, like began early because I had an incorrect thought on what this was in my head. And then, and then as a kid in 10th grade, I, or, god help me eighth grade I don't know in some grade as a kid I thought that Desdemona and Othello's relationship was just the most amazing thing and like now as an adult I'm like sitting and thinking about age
1: Mm.
0: Desdemona's young Othello's older and then I'm sitting like like for a half an hour or whatever, just staring off at the middle distance going, okay, how much of this is my contemporary brain putting something on it and going, that's not okay? How much of this is not just not okay? Like, uh, how do I translate that? Like, no, it became complicated fast.
1: Did you ever think you were not going to do it like that? You were going to call Louis Douthat at, at play on Shakespeare and just say, I, you know what, I can't.
0: Uh, no, I didn't. I did call Louie though and go, I didn't know what this was. And she laughed. She's <laughs> like, yeah, I wanted to put you on one of the comedies. I was like, bro, I should have gone. With <laughs> but at that point I'm knee deep in and I'm like, no, actually I'm gonna do it. And I'm going to translate it for what I think is being said. I'm gonna do this so that you can hear what it is. I'm now feeling now that I understand what those lines are.
1: It's so interesting to know that in your mind, uh, over time, between working on this and 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 having been introduced to it, it the, that the love story was what you came away with. Right? Uh, that's a convoluted way of saying. It's interesting that that is how you retain the story because it it that's the starting point. Right. There's this beautiful love between these two people that just seems absolutely untouchable, pure. Mm -hmm. I've been saying that I think it's the cruelest of all tragedies Mm -hmm. because that beautiful love is destroyed. But that is definitely it's it is definitely not a love story. It's a hate story.
0: It's a it's a hate story. It's actually. The protagonist is Iago, even though we call it Othello, the more of Venice, the person who is moving with clear arcing and enacting action in the way that I was taught is Iago. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is reacting to the things that he is doing. So that is where my eye is. And he's not inside love relationship. He's inside of jealous rage and hatred and so when I left school I had this thought on oh he he understood he was wrong and he killed himself and he's with Desdemona and it's okay Mm. that's who I was as a kid Mm. not the thing the thing is the man who was deciding to like detongue himself and not talk about the evil he's just enacted that's the thing Right, and the the odiousness of not talking when all these people are laying bloody dead. Right, from what you've done. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't understand as a kid. I don't know that I had uh, quite enough of the education around what this play was potentially doing. I think, that, and also in our in our time period now, if you really got in there, there will be people who would ban the talking about what is happening inside of this play, but must be done because I left going, tragic love story. Gosh, I wish Othello and Desdemona like lived and got together. And that was it without thinking any deeper about, I was, you know, I'm a kid. I'm a kid reading this. So like, what do you want me to take from it? I took the love.
1: Well, and that is the big question that I'm left with is what, what do we take away from this story to be cautious, to be on your guard, to trust no one. What, what, what is the lesson?
0: For me, the lesson is that we've been doing this from time immemorial. And if we don't actually look at what the root of what Iago is, we're all going to do. We we are met. We manifested today, yesterday, and it doesn't have to be manifested in the future, but you have to deal with Iago, and like that's the thing that we don't see is what is the dealing with Iago, and so what is next after Othello? Like what is? Uh, 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 what is I, I'm so interested in us writing as a society what the elliptical after Othello's death is, because we just keep we just keep doing this story over and over and over as an individual, as a society. We just keep manifesting it. What is happening to the thing that is now not speaking? I I am interested in that. And if you are teaching Othello with that, towards that eye, I'm okay. Okay, if you are breaking down Iago and asking what should happen next, What do we do as opposed to just keeping teaching Othello and like uh, recreating, uh, we continually do the Iago of it. No, it is such a thing that he never talks again. And -hmm. it becomes this insidious thing that can just keep happening now without talking about it. It is now the thing we'll rotate and keep doing what happens if we talk yeah what happens next
1: unspooling the mind of iago
0: yeah and uh, and 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 reckoning with what it wrought what it what it manifests and god help us maybe potentially deciding to do something else maybe the play ends on silence from the most evil and what what now
1: so we get to the end of this story. We're left with silence, questions, sorrow. We have to come together to move forward. We have to we have to deal with that. Yeah. We can't just leave it there and ignore it and say, what a horrible story, and then go about our day.
0: No, no. We actually need to understand what the punishments are. We need to understand what the new world order will be.
1: Are we there right now, do you think, as a society?
0: We're trying to roll back. Mm-hmm. We're trying to roll back. We're actually doing that thing of detonguing that happened to Iago. Right. In order, we're going to keep the...
1: With the banning of books and the... All of that. The anti, anti-racism efforts. <laughs>
0: The anti woke, all of that, all of that stuff. We are uh, squashing the tongue and maintaining. Going, this is as it is.
1: We're just gonna live with it. We're just we're 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 racist and ugly, and there's nothing to see here.
0: It doesn't have to be. It doesn't right. have. That's what's happening in another sector. And then you know there also there are the people. There are those teachers who are like, I'm gonna teach it the correct way. And God help me, I'm so scared, but I'm gonna do it, you know. So we don't always sh- sh- shine light on the fact that there are people who are working, but like in teaching the Othello, in teaching that piece, I hope that we are also going to at- have dynamic discussion on what it was, what happened, what happened, and now what. So I hope that we don't. Fall prey to that um, thing that's happening right now—that wing of our, uh, us right now—that is like, let us just keep this quiet and keep it silent.
1: Emphasis. It's been a great conversation. I'm so so grateful that you were a part of it with us, and you've done just remarkable work on this uh, tragic story. But uh, you've given us a way to deal with it and uh it's it's a great gift i want to thank you for your time your talent and your courage to just uh uh, dive in here and, and and tell this story in a new way thank you so so much thank you thank you thank you you've been listening to the play on bonus content series for othello you can learn more about the Play On Podcast at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcast.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter podcasts with an S at the end, dot com, where you can find other Play On Podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like The 500, The 10, Beef with Bridget Todd, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcast, and my producer, Pete Musto. Our audio engineer, editor, and sound designer is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content, and don't forget to rate and review our shows. It really does make a difference. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts.
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law.
1: 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Next chapter podcasts.